This is Retails, Conversations with Profit Protection, the podcast that talks direct with retailers about all things loss prevention, with your host, Nicole Smith. Did you know that the Profit Protection Future Forum is the only not-for-profit industry body promoting the interests of retail loss prevention professionals in Australia and New Zealand? Hi there and welcome to the show. Today I am joined by Joe Saunders, General Manager, Business Integration Development and Delivery at Risk2 Solution Group. This is Joe's second time on the podcast. So welcome back, Joe, and thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be invited. Joe, this is a topic that we really, I'm really sad that we have to talk about, but I'm kind of glad that we are going to talk about it. Um, and that's the unfortunate abuse of retail staff from aggressive customers is, looks like it's on the increase. Um, and I was looking at a survey that was conducted by the National Retailers Association where over 88% of retail workers interviewed had experienced abuse from customers and over 85% of workers had experienced verbal or physical abuse whilst trying to prevent crime from customers. So I wanted to talk to you today about, is the customer always right? Is this the new normal for retail? And if it's not, how can we prevent it happening? So let's start with the rise of customer violence. And Joe, I'm guessing that pre-COVID there were issues maybe that we didn't talk about or hear about. Um, and then we saw them escalate during the pandemic, especially with the whole toilet paper saga that happened in supermarkets in particular. What's it like post-pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think there's certainly a lot more awareness of customer aggression as an actual risk uh, since since the pandemic. I think it just sort of got put sort of uh, in our faces a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was something that... Uh, was certainly pronounced uh, and and became uh, harder to ignore during the pandemic. But that said, this has been an issue basically ever since people started serving other people. Right? Yeah. There's always been people that don't do that well. There's always been people that don't handle uh, rejection well or don't handle being told no or having their crime interrupted or all sorts of other things we'll probably talk about. But um, look, I, I started talking about this topic nearly 15 years ago. And at that time, uh, very few organizations in retail even had customer aggression on their risk register, at least as far as I could tell, mm-hmm. or it was handled internally by a security division or by you know, uh, staff safety or, or some other department. Um, but uh, it's always been an issue. It's always, it's always been there. Yep. And uh, I think during the pandemic, we saw a couple of factors that made it more obvious. Uh, one was that everybody was under a lot more stress, uh, workers included, Mm-hmm. meant and, and if you're in, in an industry where you were in, in uh, enforcing purchase limits on basic necessities or you were having to refuse entry to people not wearing masks or having to refuse entry to people that weren't vaccinated then certainly that created new flashpoints that weren't previously there mm-hmm. uh, what we're seeing post pandemic is that while those particular flashpoints are no longer relevant uh, we are still seeing the increase in aggression has maintained or you know, maybe the, the pointy end has sort of dipped off a little bit, but we are still seeing people being more aggressive, more frustrated uh, and uh, and more abusive than what they were pre-pandemic. And that's that's been an interesting thing to, to study. Do you think that that is because of the rise in the cost of living and people are getting stressed because of that, you know, paying bills and, you know, some of our big box retailers and with the attitude of, oh, well, you know, that business can afford to for me to steal that, you know, they can write that off. That's easy to do. 
Yeah, I think that there's a part of that. I think anything that increases the overall stress levels of a society tends to uh, create sort of behavioral anomalies, rather. Mm-hmm. And I think we can probably say over the last couple of years, we've all been under a lot more stress than what we were previously. And there's an argument we made about whether we just lacked resilience and we had, we'd kind of had it, had it on easy mode for too long. Um, but I look back at 2019, it seems really, really simple compared to now. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it seems like conferences I spoke at in 2019, I'm like, oh, wow, what a simpler time. <laughs> it's crazy to think that way. Uh, but um, I think there's uh, a few things that have gone on. One, everyone is just operating at a higher stress level, whether that's because of cost of living, whether it's because of ongoing impacts of COVID, people lost businesses, people lost careers, people have got unsettled, people moved move cities. There's all sorts of things that go on that, that have resulted in higher stress. Um the media had a field day with increasing levels of stress and uncertainty because it created extra page clicks. So that has continued on. Not that that was a new thing. So like the media suddenly realized that they could make money that way. Uh, but, um, but that, that has continued on. There always seems to be another thing for people to stress about and be worried about and be concerned about. Uh, and because of that, I think everyone's just operating at a slightly higher level of stress and some people significantly higher level of stress than what they were before, which means that those little inconveniences, those little, irritations that were previously something would just keep no one would even notice that we got bothered by it because our baseline stress level was manageable those are now flashpoints that are showing showing up in behaviors like uh, someone gave me poor customer service and rather than just kind of going oh that was a bit average now it's a look or it's a comment or it's a I, i accidentally said something under my breath and now they heard it now they're reacting to it and now that's an actual customer aggression incident whereas previously it would just be nothing so I think that that baseline level of stress being higher is causing a lot of these issues. I also think there's probably an argument to be made about uh, lack of social skills and the fact that we've all got quite comfortable doing business without having to socially interact with people. And for a lot of people, the only time they do have social interaction face-to-face with a stranger now is when they're at a store. Yep. So that's an interesting thing to look at as well. Yeah, absolutely. So do we, the public, then just accept this abuse of part of the job? Absolutely not. That is the that is the bane of my existence. That phrase is just part of the job. I agree, but yeah, I feel like when you see these incidents occur, and and look, there's always that fear factor from an outsider's point of view. Do you get involved because you don't know what that aggressive person, what they've got on them, what potentially they're going to do? So do you put yourself in in danger as well? But you know, some poor kid who's getting abused by by an aggressive customer, we as the general public tend to just turn a blind eye. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a there's a much bigger cultural discussion to be had about what how, how we view that and what we do about that. Uh, the analogy I always use when we're talking about occupational violence, whether it's retail or any other industry, uh, especially industries where there has been uh, a level of acceptance of, of violence and healthcare comes to mind immediately uh, mm-hmm. versus paramedics, it's always been part of the it's part of the framework, right? You're dealing with people at their worst, so bad things happen sometimes. But I always look at that and go, well, it's not in your position description, therefore it's not part of your job. Uh, Secondly, if we were to look at how we managed working at heights 100 years ago, that it would it would make your skin crawl now as a safety manager to look at like people being <laughs> like on buildings and and so on with, without harnesses or appropriate rigging and so on. Um, But we accepted that because they got paid better. They got danger money and falling to your death was occasionally part of the job, right? That, <laughs> that was an accepted cost of having to do business that way. Cause that's what we had. 
Now, gravity hasn't changed over the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. Consequences of falling haven't changed over the last 100 years, but we did change our appetite for that risk, and we looked at innovative solutions to address that risk. Mm-hmm. So we're never going to get rid of aggressive customers altogether. We can change the way we look at that risk and what we're prepared to tolerate and what systems we're going to put in place to mitigate that risk, um, accepting that it will be a risk going forward. Okay. So what are some of the impacts of aggressive behaviour on retail staff? So those poor people in stores that are, are, are copying it from aggressive customers, how does that impact them, you know, in two weeks' time, in two months' time, in two years' time? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's another – I mean, these are, these are all topics we could have many tangents about. Uh, I mean, you've got the obvious things. If someone gets physically assaulted, there's physical injuries – there's, there's the stress and there's the emotional impact, which may be immediate or it may be prolonged, or it may be something that only really occurs months down the track where you suddenly find that someone who thought, oh, no, I'm fine. It's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, water off a duck's back. And then you know, three months later, they're not sleeping very well mm. or they're dreading going to work and they don't know why. Uh, those are the things that are less obvious. And those are the things that don't often make it into the incident report when we're looking at what was the impact of that incident? Well, Everyone was fine. We didn't have to close the store. Staff members stayed on shift. They we checked in with them the next day. They felt okay, but three months later, they've they've changed jobs, mm. so, and and they won't always know that it was because of that incident, uh, or it might have been a buildup of multiple incidents. So you're looking at things like physical and emotional and psychosocial health, but also just a lowering of morale. Um, how does that how does that impact absenteeism and and calling in sick and uh, well, you know the, what's the phrase the uh, last week quiet quitting. You know, people yeah. are doing the minimum they have to do to not get fired. Yep. Um, the staff retention, like all that kind of thing. Those are those are real costs, especially right now with a, with the staff shortage. That um, it, they're not always going to be directly linkable uh, or obviously linkable to a to a particular incident. Um, service standards, as people's morale drops, then there's the quality of service they provide will inevitably drop over time, which does then result in more conflict. Right? Um, as they if they give a yeah, a snide remark because they're having a terrible day, uh, mm. and that can then trigger aggression from somebody else. So there's a lot of that, and then from the organization's point of view, like what's our brand? Uh, what's, what's the brand damage if there's always fights happening in our store? Yeah, who's gonna who's gonna come and shop here? Are we, we going to lose our elderly customer base because it doesn't feel safe being there? Um, like there's there's all these sorts of questions that uh, go further beyond than just oh, someone got injured. So. I guess the next question has come from one of our listeners, um, Luke Buxton from Q Clothing. Um, he sort of said, you know, for the people on the front line, what are some of the behavioural cues that they need to look for when people are becoming or, you know, they don't look like they're going to be aggressive, but suddenly that that little switch turns in the brain and off they go. So. That's uh that that's one that's I, I'd probably break it down into two different categories because we know that one of the major triggers for aggression is interruption of shoplifting and right? or or in, interruption of you know, other sort of criminal behaviors. So I mean then you're you're the behaviors you're looking for are the behaviors of shoplifting. Right? Yep. You're looking for that, uh, and you have to be aware that if, if and when you interrupt that, then there's always a potential that the person will become aggressive either as a defensive mechanism or because they're embarrassed or for whatever other reason. So. Putting those aside, because I think those are probably a different category of behaviors to look for. Yep. The main things we're looking for is is uh, is an increase in psychomotor activity. So things like pacing, sweating, 
louder voice. Um, they might be on the phone and having an argument with somebody on the phone, which is a sign of, of increased emotional arousal. Um, you, you might see them clenching their fists or they might be, they might be um, not clenching their fists in terms of fighting, but just they might be closing their hand and opening their hand over and over, which is an, a sign of stress. They might be fidgeting and pulling on their clothes a lot. They might be constantly looking over their shoulder and seeing what's around them, which could be an indication again, of, of criminal intent, but it could also just be that they're feeling really uncomfortable because of something else that's going on in their life. Um, clearly signs of intoxication, I'm sure we're all across those, um, and, and drug effect, uh, drug affected persons, those are things to be to be mindful of as well. But I think most of what we're looking for is what are the signs that someone's angry, right? What, are they having a bad day? Because we're not very good as humans of saying, I'm having a bad day, but it's not about you. Like the immediate reaction is, Everything that's in my immediate sphere, it's about that. So I think it's it's really important that we just kind of give people the benefit of the doubt in, in some ways, but but also not. Like yeah. If you yeah. feel like someone's in a bad bad place, don't stand so close to them. Don't, don't be within striking range. Um, when I when I look at uh, CCTV for our customer for our, our clients, uh, as uh, we're a consultancy, so when we we look, review incident footage for our clients. Most of the time when people get assaulted, I immediately see that person who's standing at least a meter too close. Right? Okay. They've just they've they've missed the warning signs or they've obviously seen something that's caused them to go and investigate or to have the conversation, but then they're completely oblivious to the fact that they are really, really close. And for someone who is already amped up and already agitated and emotionally aroused, your proximity can itself be a trigger and a threat to them. So that can result in the aggression with nothing else. Is that an adrenaline thing, though, from um, that person not real, like you said before, just oblivious to the fact that they're that close, is that you've got this heightened um, situation in front of you and it's a natural instinct to, you know, whether it's right or wrong, is to get up in someone's face and say, no, I don't, you know, please leave this store and... Yeah, that's, that's I, I affectionately refer to that as being becoming part of the problem and not part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's usually to do with an emotional arousal on our side. If you start getting emotionally affected by what's going on, you're no longer part of the solution. You're part of the problem because you're not going to be completely in control of your own actions. And you can get hyperfixation or tunnel vision on that particular person or what you think needs to happen. And when that happens, you do miss things like the person's too close or they're they're fidgeting in their pockets for something and you end up with a really threatening situation or you miss it. They've got a whole bunch of friends that are milling around that are coming over to see what's happening. And now we've got a really big, a really big incident to deal with. So that that fixation is is an important thing to try and break. So how do you not become part of the problem? How, what, what's some tips that we can give people not to, to let the adrenaline kick in, not to react to, to try and diffuse instead. Mm. Like this, <laughs> it, it's such a cop out when you say experience makes everything better, but it and because you don't want people to go get experience of being used to, to be better at it, right? But at the same time, uh, the main things that I try to I try to drive home from a training point of view is don't rush into situations. There is nothing to be gained by being there three seconds earlier. Usually, it's more about get, gathering that information, about looking at it analytically. What is going on? What's the likely outcome? What's my best course of action? Sometimes 10 seconds is all the difference, all you need to be able to approach with two or three staff members as opposed to an individual staff member if you feel like it might be a threatening situation. Or just to let someone know, can you just keep an eye on me while I talk to this person? Um, And then if they're thinking about kicking off and they see that there's one person talking to them, but there's another one, another staff member watching from up the aisle, uh, that might be enough of a, a deterrent for them not to escalate further. 
So don't rush. Try to remain analytical. Try to stay focused on what this person actually needs out of this. Uh, and if we think about why people get upset, why do people become aggressive? Yeah, shoplifting aside, which is a is a major one. Um, sometimes it is just that straight up delinquentism. Uh, I think I, th- I think I might have made that word up. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, we'll we'll go with it. <laughs> like, they're just there to cause a scene and to entertain themselves. And anything you do is going to is going to fuel that. Right? It's, it's, it's going to create more uh, reactions on TikTok or whatever else is going on, right? So you you be aware of that. Is the person feeling embarrassed or are they feeling disrespected in some way? Uh, this is an interesting one that came up during the the pandemic, where you know people that had never had an issue paying for their groceries were suddenly having their cards declined, and that's super embarrassing if you've never had that happen to you. That's not your normal day to day life. Mm-hmm. And that can result in aggression from someone who just suddenly feels completely socially um, you know, disadvantaged all of a sudden and people are going to be judging them and they become defensive about it. Uh, so if the person is feeling disrespected, how do I make that person feel more respected? How do I make them feel a little bit more secure in what's going on? Uh, if the person feels like they've been treated unfairly, how can I correct that? So the more we can look at the situations analytically rather than just being reactive to the aggression uh, or to the behaviours, the easier it is, well, I won't say it's easier, but it's it's more effective. It's a more effective way of not being drawn into the emotion. Is there certain language that you can use that uh, calms people down, that stops that aggressive, or that reduces that ag- aggressive behaviour? Uh, I, I I don't I don't like scripting. Yeah. Uh, as a general rule, uh, I think that scripted responses always sound like scripted responses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in fact, if if you're trying to de-escalate me or you're trying to give an explanation, and I can tell it's a script, then it immediately tells me you don't actually care. Yeah. Uh, uh, which <laughs> I've got I've got several stories about that. <laughs> probably probably the podcast will go long. Uh, I think probably as a general rule, I always try to use inclusive language. So I don't talk about you need to stop doing that. I've seen you do that. You need to you need to do this. It's I, I try to use we and suggestion and and ask as opposed to give commands. I think mm-hmm. that's very important. If our goal is de-escalation, uh, and there's a, there's a line there, but where de-escalation is always our preference. But if you're working as an LPO or you're working in some sort of enforcement capacity, then you may have to give directives, and that's a that's a different skill set. But for most workers, what we're trying to do is get it is to de-escalate the situation, make it less dangerous, and get the person to walk out, right, and 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 not cause injury. So, with that in mind, I think uh, you doing things like making the person feel respected by treating them like a normal human being, uh, giving them options, letting them know what they can do, making sure their exit is not obstructed so they don't feel trapped, all those kinds of things, um, not just physically but also verbally. Uh, can can defuse that aggression because the last thing you want is someone to feel trapped and that the only way out is through violence. Yep. Just going back to those delinquents, the ones that come in that it doesn't matter what you say or do, they're just going to be rude and aggressive. How do you manage those ones? Oh, if I knew that, I knew the answer. <laughs> You'd be a millionaire. <laughs> Four kids of my own. Thank you. <laughs> that but uh no look i i think the the major key points and there's probably nothing groundbreaking here but but don't do anything that provokes more interest because they're looking for an audience typically they're, they're looking for something that makes them look cool that makes them look like they were significant in that moment so the best strategy is always to ignore it if you can um 
obviously it can cross a line where they're now impacting the enjoyment and the safety of other shoppers or other people in the in the proximity of the area and you can't just ignore it but then we're moving into a more of an enforcement sort of interaction where that really should be the function of security police etc not necessarily your retail workers if you can't do it safely um just be aware that what they're looking for is that emotional reaction uh, and when I, I when i used to train security guards uh with that they'd often come up what do i do if i'm being filmed you know, I'm, I'm arresting someone i'm restraining someone and i'm being filmed what do i do and i said the the mindset i have when i'm being filmed doing this is i want to make that video either the most boring video they've ever ever recorded and they <laughs> ever go anywhere or I want to make it a video where my customer service is so obscenely good that I can use it as a as a request for a raise in the future. <laughs> That's uh, brilliant. And it becomes a game then, because uh, yep. like I will dial it up so far, to, so, yeah, sir and ma'am, and uh, is there anything I can get you? Does it like make it make it a full song and dance production of how amazing your customer service is, despite the fact that this person is clearly trying to antagonize you, uh, and. Uh, yeah, then you're in control. You're, yeah. you're you're now playing the game, not them. And yeah, absolutely. That can, that can be a fun way just to sort of, again, break that reactive emotional cycle. So on the issue of training, it's obviously really important now, you know, we, we train in other areas, <clears throat> excuse me, even with things like, uh, you know, loss prevention for staff at store. How do we train people and I guess the ongoing training uh, for stores? Is it best to go through and train your loss prevention teams so they become your experts on the ground um, and they go out and train in stores? Or how do you see or what do you think the best approach is for this? Look, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, but just be it based on scale, based on geographical spread, based upon number of employees you have to train, based upon the risk profile of each different location, um, there's, there's going to be a variety of different factors. I think... Uh, and look, we we provide training as a service, so don't, don't let me ever say that training is a bad idea. Um, I will say that sometimes that training is an easy solution when the more effective solution is looking more systematically at what we can do to prevent that aggression from happening in the first place, rather than training people to manage it. Mm-hmm. So I I would I always encourage, unless someone has clearly only got budget for training, that's the only thing that they're going to get approved. Then okay, cool, let's look at that. But let's go, let's take a step back and look at the systems of work, look at the layout, look at the design, look at the situations that are causing the the stresses. Can we impact those before we start worrying about training? Um, we know from a hierarchy of control point of view that training is not as effective as some other options. So what can we do before that? To answer your question about how you go about rolling that training out, it probably depends. I mean, if we're looking at a, uh, let's say, um, a jewelry store that has 15 staff, uh, and there's never more than four staff on shift at one time. Cool. Well, let's let's just get everyone together. Let's try and do some training. We can we can knock that over. If we're talking about a major retailer with 120,000 staff scattered across the country, uh, well, the cost of the training is the is the small part, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you get everyone offline, and you pay them for their time, and you organize the the location and the catering and all that kind of stuff. It becomes a quite a substantial spend. So then we have to get a little bit more creative about. Well, let's do a risk-based approach. So, where are, where are our stores that have the biggest issues? They probably need a more tailored solution. They probably need the the face-to-face training approach. Um, and whether that is going to be we train our regional managers to then become sort of a train the trainer or store managers or whatever your structure allows for. Um, and and then we we focus on those higher risk locations. And then as you get down your risk ratings, whatever they are internally, based on hopefully your incident data and uh, and demographics 
then you can start looking at, well, some people maybe just need a quick primer. Mm-hmm. Maybe, they, maybe they need to do a 10-minute e-learning course, which is supported by toolbox chats every couple of months. Um, this is stuff we've built for for other clients over the years as well, where we will train, we'll, we'll deliver the high-risk training, we'll then train their, um, say, their, their regional managers, for example, to go out and do the training when they're visiting stores. And then we'll equip them with uh, with conversation cards to have toolbox chats or stop work meetings or whatever else to just to break down those you know, common occurrences. And then there's a more of an incident response approach to where we've had an incident, let's deconstruct it, let's then involve the team so everyone feels a little bit more comfortable. But if this happens again, we know what to do about it. So there's there's a, a variety of stages, but being very cognizant of the fact that the larger the organization is, the more expensive it's going to be to train everybody. Yeah. So how do we give everybody what they need in a responsible way that's also yeah, not, not financially prohibitive? I like the idea of preventing it or trying to prevent it rather than just training for it. Because when I hear about, oh, we should do the training to make sure that our staff know what to do when an incident does occur. And that's important and ongoing. That is very important. But it kind of reminds me of um, how in the US they train for um, gun shootings in schools, which, you know, is is a horrible thing. I, you know, I can't even imagine that we'd have to ever do it here in either Australia or New Zealand. Um, and I hope it never gets to that case. But I prefer the preventing rather than training for an incident. So can you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, again, I, this is a, it's, it's a terrible topic to always start with, it depends. But <laughs> and, you know, if we're talking about a Woolworths or a Coles, it's a completely different risk picture to a convenience store or a, uh, oh my God, I almost, I almost said video shop. That, that, that's oh like, gosh, showing your my, age there. I think my brain went back to the night. <laughs> If you have any question in video stores now, let me know. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> sidetracked myself, my random recollection. Uh, but uh, I, I think looking at that, it, it's it's all about like understanding where are the incidents happening, under what circumstances are they happening, and what controls can we put in place before the incident happens that might prevent that from happening. So I see training the same as if we you know, put up a sign and say aggressive behavior is not tolerated here. Yeah, it's a control, but it's it's a control, right? It's singular control. It's not part. It should be part of a system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is, that is really the whole spectrum from the before, the during, and the after. So as a, as a general sort of overview, the main things I look at first when we're looking at preventative controls is is what's our leadership position on this? Uh, is this a priority? Is it something that we are absolutely going to drive and we're going to have support because it it isn't an overnight solution? Uh, what's our culture about aggression? Do we still have a prevailing culture of it's part of the job, suck it up and get on with it? Or if people can't hack it, that's fine. We'll hire someone who can. If that's a culture, then it doesn't matter what else you do. That's always going to be undermined by that culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the example I always use is like duress buttons and uh, panic buttons and things like that. Great to have them in. They're a great tool. Uh, but if the first time someone presses it, they get shamed for, for pressing that button when it wasn't a quote unquote bad enough situation, they will never touch that again for the rest of their career. Yep. So you've undermined whatever you've just spent on duress buttons. Um, so the leadership and culture is important. Consultation with with uh, all the stakeholders, the people impacted, uh, and also your um, your ongoing evaluation. I think those are important. Then we look at the actual controls themselves. So systems, uh, policies, procedures, governance, all those pieces. You can't hold people to a standard you haven't written down. So have we got all that in place covering off on the, the full spectrum of whatever the risks are we're dealing with? 
Do we have an accountability base here? So are we doing audits? Are we doing quality assurance? Who's who's held to account if we don't follow our own policies and procedures? Uh, then we look at mentally healthy workplaces. Are we creating systems of work that look after people's mental health? Do we? Uh, because oftentimes we put people under unnecessary load and that leads to them creating conflicts um, So and or not be able to manage that conflict well. Risk-informed training fits in there. Then we talk about um, safety and security design. So access and egress, uh, communication systems, the physical security barriers that we're all familiar with. Uh, how are we using those? Are they in a logical sequence? Or do they do they work? Have we tested them? Right? There's some yep. of the horror stories I've heard about people not having any idea how to use the infrastructure that just cost millions of dollars to install. Um, and everyone just being, oh, we finished that project, moved on to the next one. But no one knows what to do with it. Gee, that's um, scary. Yeah, um, investigations, intelligence, threat awareness, all that stuff is, is important at the organizational level. But probably the one thing I think is missed the most that is low-hanging fruit that we absolutely should be doing is learning from our incidents. How, how are we debriefing these? Like, if this happens, why did it happen? What could we have done differently? And not in a blaming way, but in a learning way. Because uh -huh. if we've seen the same type of incident happen over and over again at the same time of day in the same location with the same staff, is there something we could be doing differently? And it doesn't have to be, yeah, sometimes sometimes it is just going to happen. But we should be seeing some incremental improvements. And if absolutely. we're not, we're probably not debriefing enough. Yeah, absolutely. I know th this is probably uh, a stupid question, but why is it important to make staff feel safe at work? Well, um, we always say that, you know, our people are our greatest asset. Well, show me on the balance sheet. <laughs> show, show me what you spent on your people last year right and that, that's uh uh that sometimes people are more than happy to do that because they are really walking the talk and other times it's just a really nice soundbite uh so to me if your people aren't feeling safe and if your people aren't feeling secure and they're not feeling supported you are getting at best 60 percent of what they're capable of uh, if you want people to really go above and beyond if you think about every job that you've had where you really went above and beyond and you did more than what you're paid for, it was because you felt safe and secure and valued. If you think about the jobs where you struggled and you didn't want to go to work on Monday or whatever day of the week your shift was, it's probably because of the opposite was in place. Yep. And I think that's, if you just want to be callous and talk about numbers, you get far better outcomes out of safe, secure, motivated, loved, supported staff than you do out of broken people that you just want to replace in three months time. Well, there's a huge cost to do that too, of to course. a business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and especially now. Yeah. Um, especially now. And the more specialised your workforce, the more the higher that cost is going to be. So, okay. Uh, thing. So do you have a case study or best practice that you can share with me? Oh, I, I really, I know you, you, you circulate this with me. Um, I have to be careful because a lot of what, I'm, what I know is being shared in confidence. So okay. I, I can't. You, no names. Yeah, no names. But um Look, one area that I've been impressed with, uh, it's, a, it's a government agency. So it's, it's not retail, but uh -huh. it'll give you ideas of some things that they've done that are very proactive. Uh, so they've spent a lot of time and money on thinking about what is the customer journey through this space. So from the time, so from the time they first, in their case, make an appointment uh, and come in, what is the what does every touch point look like? Uh, how long have they spent on hold? How long have they, uh, how many times have they been transferred to get an answer to their question before they've approached us? Yeah, on location uh what is the what how are they greeted is it easy to find a car park all these kinds of little tiny triggers that can lead to someone blowing up once they get inside they look at those holistically which i think is really clever mm -hmm. once you get inside is it easy to navigate do you know where things are 
<laughs> shout out to Coles and Woolworths who have a different layout in every single store. <laughs> I'm just sharing my own grievances now. It's <laughs> orientating going to my not my yeah. I te- I typically go to Woolies most of the time. Uh, apologies to Coles, just proximity. Uh, but I'll I'll go to just the next Woolworths over, and I can't find a thing. <laughs> and I know it more agitated. Right? <laughs> so anyway, that's. Uh, they do it to keep you on your toes, Joe. I know. I, yeah. Sometimes I don't want to be on my toes. <laughs> Just want to find the kitty litter. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I think that, that whole customer experience, that whole journey, and then this this agency has gone through and trained their staff in very particular things, like not just general de-escalation, but looking at how to manage someone who may be under the influence of drugs or alcohol, how to manage someone who is exhibiting signs of mental illness, how to manage someone who may be a victim of abuse. Um, and and obviously, the as you get more detailed into knowing who their client base is, they can get into into the weeds a lot more. Yep. But the way they've done that is through an onboarding process, but then regular updates as well. So micro-learning sessions every month on different topics just to keep the fundamentals solid, but then also add a little bit of extra knowledge. Um that I think is a really cool best practice. They also have a really good investigations team that they critically debrief all incidents and and make sure everyone's okay afterwards. It's a federal government agency. They they may have access to more budget uh, for that for those kinds of things than than all the listeners out there. But I would encourage you to think outside of what signs do we need, what barriers do we need, and what you know, do we need security guards? Uh, we need to think bigger than that, and we need to look at what is the customer experience here that may prevent these incidents from happening. Now there, there will be some incidents you just cannot prevent because people have come in with the, with the outright stated urge to create mayhem. And you will, you have very limited ability to deter that without making your whole site into a prison. But I would venture that probably 90% of the incidents you're having probably didn't need to happen. And they're more reactive than proactive, in which case there's probably things we could have done to, to minimize the chance of that happening. Okay. Good advice. Uh, Joe, we've got to the final three questions. So the first one, I'd like you to finish the sentence, is you'd never know this about me, but I. Do you know this was a really hard for me? <laughs> I've done like 150 hours of my own podcast and I wrote a book. So like if, if you really if you really want to know about me, I don't have a whole lot of secrets. Left. <laughs> um, but no, look, I, I think probably the thing that most people – going to chuckle out of uh is that i actually started my first security or protection service when i was six years old so i was in grade one i was already one of the bigger kids in the in the in the class and i didn't like bullies so i i started recruiting my friends to be the playground police and we go and protect kids they were getting picked on and that was uh I was when I was six years old. It probably should have been a warning sign that I was already going to be a nerd. You were born for this job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My mum has great pleasure in telling that story. Uh, but uh, That's but yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. It starts at a young age, though, doesn't it? Like if you can stop people bullying at a young age, maybe they'll stop doing it when they're older. Yeah, and look, I think, I think if you've got a call to protect others, then you should be doing it. We need more people looking out for everybody else. Absolutely, especially in now with what we've all gone through the craziest story i've heard about customer violence is oh look again three categories for this there's some that are like really traumatic um and i don't want to one one of those funny ones that sort of makes you chuckle i've got two so i I kind of i kind of lumped them into three categories traumatic gross and funny all right I'll, i'll i'll give you two i'll give you the gross one and the funny one okay the gross one i did a risk assessment on a um 
uh, a client that has uh, op shops basically. Uh, and uh, apparently it was a common thing. I'd never come across this before. Maybe I was just naive, but uh, customers would have an argument and then they'd get back at the staff by defecating in the changing rooms and may, uh, in, the, in the try-on room. So the staff would have to go and clean it. It was like this passive. That's disgusting. I know. Gross, right? And they said, oh, it happens like at least once a month. I'm like, really? Wow. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that's that's a, that's a crazy story I hadn't expected. That is gross. And the, the slightly funny one, uh, I early on in my career, I worked in, uh, in hospital security uh, before I went into aggression management and healthcare. And uh, you see a lot of weird and wonderful things that happen in hospitals uh, because of yeah, we got patients in all sorts of different states and conditions and so on. Uh, and uh, we, we received a call that uh, in a, in a surgical recovery ward that um, they had an issue with an aggressive, aggressive patient. So we went up to, uh, to obviously investigate and it was this, uh, this older lady, I guess she was probably in a, in her late sixties, I guess, I guess. Mm. Uh, and she had woken up post-surgery, incredibly disorientated and was just on a war path and uh and you know she's she's just had surgery so we're like trying to like oh god what do you what do you do how do you how do you stop her um she's she's in a completely different reality at that time and she ended up going into a, a kitchenette and she grabbed she was grabbing these um handfuls of plates and as we're trying to approach her down the hallway just frisbeeing plates up and they're crashing everywhere and breaking everywhere and and we're, we're sort of like trying to take cover behind pillars and then advance and then take cover and and, and Eventually, I noticed that she had three plates left, and I waited for three more plates to break. And I said, "She's reloading." Gently restrain her and get her to bed. And uh, she was mortified the next morning when the what she'd done. She had no memory of it whatsoever. <laughs> Not quite retail violence, but that was a uh... uh... no, no one got hurt other than her pride, I'm sure. Uh... Uh... Okay, and lastly, I'd like you to look into your crystal ball and the future of customer violence in retail in Australia and New Zealand is? Uh, good news and bad news. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the bad news is we, we shouldn't be expecting to get better. Uh, I think we're, we've got a lot of factors going on that's resulting in just increase in violence and antisocial behaviour generally. Um, I think um, just putting our head in the sand and expecting that things will suddenly get better because the pandemic is coming to an end, hopefully. Uh, I don't think that's a good strategy. Uh, the good news is that we are seeing a massive increase in the number of organizations that are reaching out for help, which means that there are more and more organizations that are trying to do the right thing. They're recognizing this is a risk. They're either setting up teams internally, which is absolutely a great thing, uh, or they're reaching out to consultants like us to, to try and assist with setting those up. Uh, ultimately, I do think that the best solution is always going to be an in-house solution, uh, which is once you've established that expertise, um, sometimes you just need that outside support to be able to put those pieces in play and then you need to be and then grow the capability to manage it internally. I think that's the, the best solution. But there is a lot more organizations now that are having this conversation, listening to podcasts like this, reaching out to people like us. And I think that has to be a good thing because even if the, even if the levels go back to where they were in 2019, that still wasn't okay. Yep. So, it's, if, if nothing else, we're doing more about it, which is which is good. That's good. Joe, thanks so much for your time today. Um, it's really not an easy topic to cover, but an important one to speak out on. So I, I personally think that this should never be seen as just part of the job. Um, and I don't think anyone deserves to be treated like that. I think there's a couple of actions that probably need to be taken. We need to see a bit of a shift in our community um, attitude 
you know, we talked about it briefly before, you know, not accepting this is really what we should be doing because and and really calling out those people that are behaving badly and um, hopefully getting law enforcement involved to make sure that they don't do it again. Um, I guess we probably need some legislation to, to cover this um, increase in, in customer violence and also um, increase the powers for law enforcement um, and see some training programs for staff and, and that prevention, I guess, of uh, how to deal with these types of incidents. So I really appreciate your time, Joe. It is a it's a tough topic to talk about. I know we had a bit a few laughs at um, at, at other people's expense, but <laughs> and, and video shops. Pardon? And video shops. <laughs> and video shops. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of aggression when you went to get that new release and you picked up the wrong case and. It was actually checked out. I'm sure. I'm sure that resulted in some aggression back oh, in the day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with Joe, you can find him on LinkedIn, and when I will put Joe's contact details in our show notes. You can subscribe to the weekly podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and there's a link to download episodes and show notes on the PPFF website. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Profit Protection Future Forum. It's written by myself, Nicole Smith, and produced by Darren Chave. Remember to save the date for October 19th. It will be our first face-to-face PPFF meeting, and it will take place in Sydney. The committee is just finalising the speakers, so keep your eyes peeled on LinkedIn for updates and registration details. Also, if you'd like to ask a question regarding anything about loss prevention, send us an email at info at profitprotection.co and we will answer it live on air at our next recording. I'll be back next week to keep talking all things profit protection. Thanks for listening to Retails, Conversations with Profit Protection. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you want to find out more about the Profit Protection Future Forum, head to profitprotection.co or find us on LinkedIn. Drop us a message on info at profitprotection.co with feedback on our show.